Talking Inclusion with Stephanie Hurst. A very warm welcome to the first ever inclusive employers podcast, Talking Inclusion with. Hi, I'm Stephanie Hurst and I'm really happy and chuffed to have been invited to host this very first podcast. And as we near the end of LGBT History Month, we're going to be talking about LGBTQ plus with our fabulous guest today, Teresa Farringstone, who's Customer Experience and Integration Leader Aon, who is also Secretary of the LGBT Insurance Network, and Marianne Cowie, Strategic Execution Manager at Zurich and Chair of Zurich Pride UK. Hello, Teresa and Marianne. Welcome to our first podcast. Hello, and thank you. And we also have our very own Matthias Carvalho, who's Senior Inclusion and Diversity Consultant. Hi, Matt. Oh. I know at Inclusive Employers, uh, lots of questions get asked about the use of pronouns and how to support LGBTQ plus employees. So today on our first podcast, we're going to talk just that. How best to support LGBTQ plus colleagues in the workplace. And also going to be talking about stereotypes in the workplace and dress and all sorts of stuff like that and coming out at work and the journey because it can be a, a huge weight on people's minds because I, I've always thought that if you're your true self at work, you're a better person at work, you're more creative, you're better at your job, you're not having those thoughts weighing down on your mind all the time that you're not being your true self because that's that's using up a real amount of your brain power within the workplace as well. I, I guess my, my first questions today to uh, Teresa and Marianne, I mean, Teresa, have you ever been treated differently at work as a member of the LGBTQ plus community? I don't believe I have, although I would I would also caveat that by saying you don't know what's being said about you when you're not in the room. So mm-hmm. as far as I'm aware, I've had no different treatment. What, what I would also say, though, uh, to counterpoint that somewhat negative place to start is uh, I do think it's given me a lot more opportunities that I, that I might otherwise have had. So I, I definitely think that there's no um, problem in the workplace with standing out and 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 marketing your standout uh, and being noticed by senior people. And Marianne, I guess the same question to you as well. Have you ever found that you've been treated differently at, at work because of being a member of the LGBTQ plus community? It, fortunately, quite a similar story, actually. I think certainly consciously, no, no issues, no run-ins with anybody. Probably much more likely to I don't know, have a comment about being a woman in a particularly male-dominated industry than actually being a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, And and yeah, it has been probably something that's opened some doors and some conversations and connections beyond maybe what other people get to experience and and take part in. So no, all all been quite positive, actually. Have you both been out at work from your very kind of first foray into the into the world of work or, or was it something that you both did I guess really when you felt comfortable that I can now be my true self or because I guess finding ourselves in life it is a journey itself isn't it I guess really Marianne? Definitely and so I have I have been out ever since I, I started which was just over five years ago and I came in on on the graduate scheme at Zurich so I was quite determined I suppose pressure came from myself to to be out and to not let it become a big big thing you know for, for myself I was like, actually if I just filter this into daily conversation from the get-go I can avoid it having to be a big announcement like I'd made it at school or at uni or to my family you know so I was like right let's let's try and tackle this in a slightly different way um so it, you know but like, like we always say it's it's very much a, a journey of I suppose whenever you meet somebody new it, it's that same conversation again um but when you put yourself I suppose in a bit of a platform for being 
you know, in in the network or chairing the network, you also mm-hmm. sometimes have that legwork done for you, and you have you don't have to come out <laughs> again and again, which is quite nice. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it, uh, Teresa? I guess that for some people, it's the coming out again and again and again, and that that can be very tiring, can't it? Yeah, I mean, I would say not only do you have to come out again and again and again, um, it's all, always those micro decisions about is this the right time to have this conversation or to drop the bomb, if you will, um, is, uh, you know, is this a safe place? You know, should I tell my client? Because although my customer, you know, my company might be good, my, you know, my client might have a different opinion and you don't want to, you know, uh, apply uh, any stresses to that relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So you do have to constantly make those decisions. But then again, I think that it makes the LGBTQ plus community a lot better at risk management because we're doing it, you know, on a micro basis on a day to day. I say recently, but now when I count the years, it's probably more than five on the journey of coming out as non-binary. So it, in, that's a whole different flavor of coming out. That at least when you, I came out in my late teens as, as a lesbian, everybody knew what one of those was. And therefore, you know, it does shortcut the conversation. They may not have met one before, but um, it was at least a term that was fairly familiar to people. Whereas non-binary is you often get the wait what now type thing, um, which you then have to embark on a, uh, a, a perhaps a more protracted conversation about describing what non-binary is and then where you sit within that. I always think that it's the choice to be uneducated, isn't it? Because it's not as if we're living in the 1980s anymore or anything like that, or early 90s, or I guess the best part of the 1990s, we've got this thing called the internet, which is brilliant because there's so much information. And if, you know, if you're working with someone within the workplace who identifies as non-binary, it's really easy for you to go and look that up and educate yourself, isn't it? Yes. I would also say there's so many, so much going on though in this life of the internet that picking and choosing those, those niblets that you choose to educate yourself with can be tough, I guess. But, but you're right, I think. And, and I suppose since the whole Black Lives Matter Ferrari, you know, that kicked off, one of the key points that I think we've all kind of leveraged a bit is that that whole thing it's not my job to educate you you should go and take some of that uh, responsibility yourself and I've certainly kind of used that expression or that you know that that mindset um, when talking to others more recently yeah because there's 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 a lot of trusted sources out there as well and reputable sources where you can get information from you're not just dropping on some random YouTube channel or something like that that someone's recording in their back bedrooms. There's great education out there for all areas of the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And I think that's a real, it's a real vital thing that, and I guess, as, as you mentioned, which is coming out of the Black Lives Matters thing, which is really important. And Matt, it, welcome to, because we've not spoken to you yet, uh, Matthias. Um, what advice would you give to, to employers to, to support their LGBTQ plus colleagues, whether they choose to come out or not? So I'm going to start by linking back to something that Teresa said around safe spaces and Marianne, you alluded to it as well. So, and actually I'll link it back to my own journey in which when I started in the workplace a couple of jobs ago, a lifetime ago now, 
um, I wasn't out when I when I started in the workplace, and I was also waiting for that moment in which okay, when can I, when should I drop in the the gender of my partner? You know, something that for I guess for most straight people they don't have to think twice before they say it. And something now that that has helped that experience has helped me in the conversations I have with members now, in the sense that how can you ensure that people understand that it's a safe space from day one. So from the moment that they join the organization, is there any LGBTQ plus representation that they can see, whether when they join the, the, the company on, on their website or when they're going for an interview? But also, if you're putting those messages out there, obviously, you do need to be making that, you, know, you do need to be doing your homework as an organization to be ensuring that those safe spaces that you're talking about are really, really there. So um, uh, we talk a lot about psychological safety with our members. So that is about having that space where people feel like they can have a voice. They're not going to be discriminated against. They're not going to be dismissed because of their identity. And a lot of times there's so many ways, and I think we're going to be discussing this later on how, how we create those spaces, but sometimes it comes down to having clear policies around what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in this workplace and getting, making sure people understand those policies. Also tackling banter, as in, you know, how can a space be safe for an LGBTQ plus employee if uh, there are jokes being made at the expense of uh, their and other colleagues' identity or sexual orientation? When I talk about LGBTQ plus history month, it's, it's interesting to see that a lot of our role models in the community, they have not been, or they've, they've just been not given the space that they, they should have had. And even for, I guess, a lot of LGBTQ plus people out there, it's sometimes hard to think of role models if you're not tuned into the history because those stories have not been highlighted the way that they should. So how can companies be doing the same in terms of uh, giving space to their LGBTQ plus, not only employees, but also the LGBTQ, sorry, LGBTQ plus contribution to their businesses. So it could be from a consumer perspective, service perspective, and making sure those are highlighted. And that, that helps create a safe space in which we are thinking for different lenses that are not just what, what we would call heteronormative lenses. Yeah, I, just, just one single comment in a meeting can become a whole painful experience, can't it, for people and forced you then not to be yourself within the workplace if you're even, you know, starting to take those first tentative steps to becoming yourself and becoming out, just one comment in a meeting can force you straight back into retreating and not being your your true self, Marianne. Definitely. I mean, it can undermine all the good work that so many people are doing. You know, you see it on Twitter, there are you know thousands and thousands of, of people that are very positive and very welcoming, but it's always the, you know, the, the loud sort of hatred that comes through above it all. And that's, you know, quite, quite heartbreaking to see. And it, just to pick up on Matt's point there about the safe space, because I think everyone's story is really different. I, I always like to tell mine because it, it is positive to give people that encouragement that, you know, the chances are it's, it, it is going to be okay. Um, but I think it'd be naive to think that that's not the case, you know, that that's the case for everybody. And in some ways I'm very aware that I tick a lot of the very traditional um, sort of boxes in terms of what people expect to see in, in our financial services industry. You know, I'm middle class, I suppose palatable for, for people in that sort of white 
kind of way and and you know actually I don't really push the boundaries of of that so people can find it a bit easier to accept that oh yeah oh she's a lesbian okay that's all right but actually if you start looking at it from different lenses of intersectionality that becomes a much harder challenge I think for businesses and colleagues within them to maybe accept and to start having that conversation. So we've we've touched on on safe spaces several times I guess Teresa how do we how do we go about in the workplace creating those safe spaces? Well, it's probably leading on to one of your other topics, but I think um, the LGBT networks are quite vital in that because they create platforms for a voice and visibility. Um, and as Matteo said, the putting the putting the uh, policies in place that underpins that, so you're you're basically um, you know drawing lines about what's acceptable behaviour and not and the consequences of poor behaviour, um, to examining your dress policies. Um, you know, there, there are a ton of different things that organisations can do, uh, some of which are low-hanging fruit and some of which, you know, take a bit more grounding in and, and um, evolution. Um, to, 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 so I suppose it's a bit of a... Um, uh, a well-used expression, but it's a journey. It's interesting you mentioned the um, the stereotypes in 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 how you dress in the workplace. What what has been your experience of that? We work in the square mile, uh, Marianne and I, and and so it's very much the suited and booted type dress code. And for anybody to step outside of that seems sometimes to be a bit of a risk. Much less anybody who wants to be a non-gender normative you know, uh, garments. Although um, I do remember when one of my male chums saying that he, he feels like he should be able to go into Lloyd's in a frock because it was a particularly hot summer that year. <laughs> and um, and he really wanted to challenge some of those stereotypes, but he never actually had um, uh, found the opportunity or, or the courage to do that. But it's that uniform of the city sometimes, which which I think can be problematic because it does expect you to be to be in informal office wear, which which can be you know even having non natural hair color, you know, like if you wanted to come in with bright pink hair, I think you'd have problems. So um, it's just a bit more staid, I guess. But it, having said that, I, I do think it's improving. Um, I've seen lots of improvements over over the last you know ten plus years. Do you think that being, as we're working virtually these days, people are dressing a little more comfortable even on Zoom these days? Do you think that's going to change things within the workplace a little bit? I would like to think so. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I, I'm, I am quite intrigued to see what will change. So much has changed because of lockdown um, that I think is positive. Not least things like this, for example, which which um, open up with might formerly have been a session in a London office or a Manchester office or whatever, and only the the people local to that office would have t- had the opportunity to join. Because we're doing things a lot more virtually, we're seeing a lot, you know, a lot more participation from around the country, which I think opens up opportunities for people to, you know, see meet here from peers and their community in a way that they hadn't previously been able to. So I think there's lots of opportunities for how lockdown might positively improve the workplace practices. And I think it was, you know, we, we saw quite a few initiatives coming in that helped that before lockdown as well, we, we have dress for your day at Zurich. And I know a few other companies have, have adopted similar sort of practices because it, 
it's, it treats people like grown-ups you know actually if you're if you're coming into the office to to work on a project and you've got your head in you know a, a ball paper all day then actually you should be empowered to decide what what outfit you know best fits for you for that day and actually if you're then going out to see brokers that expect a certain level of professionalism you can dial it up you can dial it down you know you can add a bit of your own sense of personality and that I think is just a great step in in the direction of actually who who decides what professional is you know are we still very archaic in in that sort of what's successful and what's not and and actually people's hair color you know accessories and a bit of gender non-conforming dress probably isn't that actually that extreme in pushing that boundary i think now let's talk about pronouns because right now in 2021 how important are the use of personal pronouns in the workplace we're seeing especially where i work we're seeing lots of people who are having he him she her them they uh, on the bottom of their email and this just shows that how far we've we've come in a, in, in in quite a lengthy journey actually in recent times i guess matt what do you find to be uh, the the key questions employees have around pronouns and, and, and I guess what is the key advice from inclusive employers on that? I think one of the questions that we, you know, we, we, we get from organizations is why to begin with, okay, why, why to start this conversation on pronouns and uh, not just expecting that people understand it and understand the importance, but also give it that context. And the other element is how. So what organizations also ask us is how, how to do it. So, um, well, first of all, why is it important? I think it shows that the organization respects and that the organization um, understands and is providing and is working towards providing that safe space to all colleagues in the workplace. And also it encourages people not to make assumptions about people's gender identity and about people's pronouns. So um, a lot of the conversations that we have here at Inclusive Employers as well is around uh, think before you speak, think before you act. And I think this encourages people to take that step back and just not take it for granted that they are making an assumption and that assumption is correct about a person's gender identity and their pronouns. And the other question we get is how, how to do it. So one of them that you mentioned, Stephanie, there, I think is around the email signatures. So having people's pronouns People have others' pronouns right next to their name in their email signature because that adds as a, that acts as a constant reminder of, uh, of the conversation. And it also, again, it sends a message. It sends a message to people that this is an organization in which we care about this and which we are taking steps to provide a safe space. Other ways that you can do it also is at the beginning of meetings or training sessions. So say when people go around the room introducing themselves, if they want to, and, you know, I think as a, whoever is leading that meeting can uh, set the example and start. So I could start the, the meeting by saying, my name is Mateos, my pronouns are he and him. We also use it on, um, on email templates or sorry, on presentation templates. So say if you are, if you have your name, you can have your pronouns next to it. Also on Zoom or team calls. So add your pronouns right next to your name. And again, that helps ha- start a conversation, but it also ensures that we are providing a safe space where people do not have to make assumptions about other people's pronouns and gender identity. Ooh, we touched on assumptions earlier as well, because assumptions can be something 
that that really weigh heavy on people within the workplace. I mean, Teresa, I mean, and Marianne, do you use pronouns in your emails? I mean, do you think it's important for everyone to do the same as well? Yes. Yeah, I, I do actually. And, and so do quite a few people at, at Zurich, um, which, which is great to see. And I think it's also useful. We talk about it a lot in the sense of a sort of being normalizing it, particularly for the trans and non-binary community. But it can also just be incredibly helpful if you work in a company that's global because sometimes you can't you're not familiar with names in a certain language so it gives you a bit of a heads up of of how that person identifies it's really useful for cis people who have names that are are gender neutral you know just to help give that extra bit of information so it it works in in a really multifaceted way um but i think at the heart of it, it is just trying to normalize it i certainly try and start a lot of my pride events now um by introducing myself and then saying what my pronouns are. And the more we can make that as normal as saying, and this is my job, and the, all the usual things we put in our little brief 30-second intro, the better. I guess the challenge for me is now to try and take that out of just that pride context of events where I feel very comfortable and I know that the audience is very receptive to that and then maybe try doing it in, in some more um, yeah, non-Pride related events and meetings would be the next step for me, I think. And Teresa, this, I'm guessing as, as generations evolve within the workplace, because there are people that are probably coming up to retirement and thinking, well, this is all a little bit strange. I've never experienced anything like this before. What, what's, what's going on? I've been in the workplace for, you know, 40 years. And what's all this? This is a bit odd. But it's all about educating, isn't it? And educating people, you know, the older generation, which may have another... 10 years left in in the workplace or five years or whatever. But next generations coming through now and, and Gen Z and the ones behind them as well and the ones that are born today, this will be normalised, won't it, Teresa? Well, I would I would hope so. I mean, like Maz, I, I definitely put um, the pronouns in the, in the footer of my email signature block and a s- small explanatory note as to why. One thing that I would caution though. Sometimes we just think we put all of the responsibility on the upcoming generation to change the world. And to be fair, if they're new into the workplace, what we tend to do is conform rather than want to change things because we're, we're entering this scary new world where, you know, where people are going to pay for our, you know, bed and board and, and whatnot. And, and therefore, surely we need to make them happy and, and not rock, rock the boat. So I do think there's a, a tension of that expectation versus the reality of how much, how much, you know, the next generation will come in and change stuff. However, as you suggested, you know, Gen Z and and beyond are so much more comfortable with having gender non-conforming non-conformity around them and 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 all this sexuality variations from heterosexual to pansexual and everything in between and asexual of course. So I think those kind of conversations seem to be happening a, a, a lot more earlier in, in people kids evolution and they seem to be meeting a lot more of those people you know in the playground or the parents of of, of their friends etc so i am really hopeful that this will become a lot more normal and things um, you know will change if not because we are sort of being challenged as those employers to to create environments in, in which these these people will thrive so if they're not demanding it, we're thinking they're going to, and therefore we're trying to change things. So, um, and that's good. And as to um, some of our older colleagues who who are on, you know, your your um, 
boomers and and Generation Xs like myself, I'm I'm still um, I'm having really engaging conversations with people who who are curious about these things. And yes, it is new, and and some of the questions they ask they make you like raise your eyebrows sometimes. But I think this is all just part of of, of dealing with in this multi generational environment that is the workplace. It's interesting you mentioned us like Generation X and uh, and boomers and, and and stuff and and the education. I mean, for for you on the non binary spectrum, how has your journey been in in kind of educating people in and outside of the workplace? Well, first I had to educate myself uh, because non binary was was not a term that was around when I was a kid. I mean, as you said, you've been in the in the uh, workplace for about five years. I did the maths thirty for me. Right. So, so it was a wholly different world. And as I said, it said earlier, you know, lots of terms, uh, didn't really exist or were whispered about or, or, you know, or spoken about in inflammatory press articles, mostly thinking about the, you know, the trans community and, 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 and people transitioning. Um, so when these terms popped up on my radar, I suddenly, you know, firstly, I was interested in them. And then secondly, I was like, oh, how, hold on. These actually describe me. And that's quite a scary journey to try and reimagine yourself with these new terms and to take that leap to explore whether, you know, the words that you've been using to describe yourself aren't actually uh, as well-fitting as, as, as new terms are. And so once I took that educational step of, of trying to, you know, explore and, 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 and discover whether these terms fit, then um, sharing that with other people and that empathy of, I know it's confusing because I mess it up sometimes. So if I mess it up, I've got huge sympathy for other people who mess it up. Um, maybe a, a softer conversation that can be had with people that is like, yes, it is new. We're all, we're all on this journey. Yeah, especially on the, on the you know, gender, variant gender, not normative um, side of things. Yeah, it is a whole new world that, you know, lots of us, there's terms popping up hither and thither, you know, I can't keep up with them all, so I can't expect everybody else to. And I think the only thing that we can do is, is keep an open mind, uh, be respectful and just treat people at face value if they, you know, that they are what they say they are. Go with it. Now, let's chat about networks. I know Teresa and Marianne have both been actively involved in setting up networks, both at Aon and at Zurich. I mean, and can you tell us briefly about them? And, and Marianne, why you chose to set up the network at Zurich? So I was quite fortunate that I didn't have to set mine up. I, I luckily inherited an already um, fully functioning network. But what we did do when, when I took over is... Um, take a bit of a step back and work out whether we wanted to rebrand so in some ways it sort of felt like a bit of a fresh start for the for the network and we um, rebranded to pride just because it was that little bit easier for everybody to understand exactly what it was about and to get everybody on board I suppose um I suppose why I got involved was mostly down to to Lindsay and Mickey and other people on the on the um, network as was giving me that confidence and saying, actually, do you know what? You'd be a really good role model here. You'd, you'd, you'd be a great chair of this network and, and giving you that sort of sense of belief to go, do you know what? Actually, I am really passionate about this. I, I do want to make this company a better place to work. 
have got lots of opinions and actually to have somewhere to channel them productively was was a real opportunity so I suppose that was a thank you to them for encouraging me to take that that step up and lead um because it gave me that outlet I suppose to try and, and and make some change I think particularly when you've had a very positive experience and, and I suppose quite fortunate in that you know I've still got all my friends and family and I, I've not got a particularly um difficult story of, of coming out it, it felt like I had a bit of a responsibility to try and make that happen for as many others as possible you know just to, to lay those foundations so that the new grads or the apprentices or, you know, work experience students or just people coming from another company join and know that they're welcome and that they're safe. And I think that is, that is really powerful. You know, I need, yes, it's great if you can change policies and healthcare and practices along the way, but fundamentally, if you can change how that one person feels to me, that, that was pretty much everything. And I guess the same question to you, Teresa, as well, you know, setting up these networks and uh, you're the secretary of the LGBT insurance network as well, aren't you there? Yeah, although um, I have recently stepped down from that role to let others, uh, you know, step up and and take leadership roles. Mazzy's explained it very well around, you know, how LGBT networks can work within organisations. I think the thing about sometimes working with um, organisations such as the LGBT insurance network, LINK, is that it's it's cross-organizational. Part of that is the goal of trying to make the entire sector or industry be a, a lot more welcoming. And the power also that that gives you is to try and set up a bit of friendly competition between all of the different organizations. So you can, you know, saying, well, that company's doing it. Why aren't we? And that can be quite powerful in, in this competitive environment that we're in. But also it allows us uh, at Link to like showcase the, the good behaviors and the, you know, the good examples that um, some organizations are doing. And, and that again raises their profile and amplifies, you know, the, the good things that, for example, uh, Zurich are doing. And again, it creates a wider network for people to move around in so that they know that, you know, not only in their organization is it safe, but you can chat across organizations just on a social, you know, going for those monthly drinks and just that, that social thing about sharing common experience across different organizations um, can be very powerful. Again, it, you know, it gives you the ability to showcase, amplify, meet with people and network. And, and basically, it's an amplification of, of what the LGBT networks in different organisations, the internal networks are doing. And Matt, have you got any examples of, of successful networks? And I guess mainly, actually, why they've been so successful? Yeah, I've got lots of examples of uh, networks have been successful and the actions that they have, ta- they have taken. But also, I think the another piece here is the approach that the organizations have taken to the networks to ensure they are successful. Two things that Teresa and Marianne said that really resonated with me. Marianne, you said about changing the way that people feel. I think one of the beauties of an employee network is that sometimes, you know, you will make, you will make change to people's lives and you will not even know about it. You know, people will change their way of thinking or you will make an individual's experience all that much better. And sometimes you may not even hear about it, but just the fact that you are there as a network that helps create that safe space that help create, that helps send that positive message. And that makes a whole lot of difference to, to people at the individual level. Now on why networks are successful. 
Um, I think that the organizations that I see doing really, really well are the ones that treat networks as business critical. And it's just not, not just a nice thing to do. So when we say it's business critical, it's essential to the way that business has ideas. It's essential to create in a safe space. And also managers give employees the time necessary to uh, take part in network activities. I also think networks that are, that succeed really, really well, they are given tools to succeed. So it's uh, also organizations going, okay, so here's our strategy. Here's what we're aiming to achieve with diversity and inclusion. How can you take part in that? Here are the tools to help you succeed as a network. So it's about channeling that passion into strategy as well. So you have your socials, which are such an important part of a network, but then you're also adding, you're maybe thinking of policies, you're maybe thinking of um, the way we do things at the organization and uh, creating a dialogue between the network and uh, key stakeholders in the organization. I think that really, really, really um, helps elevate a network and give them the platform to succeed as well. And I also think from networks that are really successful, they keep an ear to the ground in terms of what is important to the LGBTQ plus community. So say, for example, last year, are we supporting the trans community amidst this uh, really, really tough year where transphobic discourse was coming right, left and center? Are we supporting the LGBTQ plus community for COVID and how that has impacted different people in the community? So again, it's keeping that dialogue alive rather than uh, start being stifled in terms of what we want to achieve and what we want to do and keeping near to the ground to what's current and what's relevant and also keeping a close relationship with the organization to ensure that we are achieving the inclusion objectives of, of the organization as well. It, it got me thinking about it, the fact that we're speaking to people here Especially, you know, Zurich, um, Marianne, is it something like 54,000 employees within within the business? Something like that. On a global scale, yeah. But what about those small businesses? What advice do you have if you're a small business owner and a member of staff comes out or a new starter is on the LGBTQ plus spectrum? Where do you start? It's a new experience for the management structure there and they're in fear of getting things wrong. What advice would you have for them? I think that's that's where organisations like Link come into their own, really, because you've got that wider support framework there. You know, you've got a real vast spectrum of people and experiences along all manner of where they are in that setting up of a LGBT network versus not having any LGBT employees. So, you know, I, I would encourage that there are a lot of those sorts of networks around, not just in the financial services industry, but beyond. So, you know, do, do a bit of research into that and see if there are already that support system that you can draw on. Otherwise, it can be, it can be really tough, you know, and, and I say that that's okay, you know, and it's expected to to have to try and find your feet and find that rhythm and, and, and learn from your mistakes and that they, they might happen and you might put your foot in it occasionally, but you know, you only make progress if you, if you carry on trying and sort of giving up at the first hurdle is you know a bit, a bit of a barrier. So, yeah. Can I throw something in as well though, that I think sometimes the large global organizations, although they can employ, you know, diversity and inclusion professionals, um, so, you know, they've got perhaps the budget to throw it, even hiring somebody full time to do a role. Um, they frequently are, are completely bound by needing to report back up through their, you know, organizational chain. And, and that small organizations have the opportunity to be a lot more agile because usually they just have to go to, you know, the local, the local 
CEO, which might just be sitting two desks across from you. So um, whilst they small organisations wouldn't necessarily be able to support their own LGBT networks, I think um, they can make a lot more swift impact on, on culture um, uh, to to their colleagues than, than large large organisations can. So I think, yeah, it can be there. It has some difficulties, but it certainly has some large advantages. Thank you so much to our guest, Teresa Farrinson, Customer Experience and Integration Leader, Aon. Thanks, Steph. And Marianne Cowie, who's Strategic Execution Manager at Zurich and Chair of Zurich Pride UK. Thanks, Steph. And of course, to our very own Matthias Cavallo, who's Senior Inclusion and Diversity Consultant. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. And of course, for more information about supporting LGBTQ plus colleagues, you can visit our website, which is inclusiveemployers.co.uk. That's inclusiveemployers.co.uk. And also, if you're a member of Inclusive Employers, there's a link to our LGBTQ plus resources in our podcast description. And on the next podcast, join Inclusive Employers' very own Stephen Copsey, who is talking about inclusion in sport. He'll be joined by the incredible Anita Asante, former England international footballer, James Ledger, Commonwealth athlete, as well as Michelle Daltrey, one of our inclusive sports specialists here at Inclusive Employers. You've been listening to Talking Inclusion with Stephanie Hurst. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, then please subscribe and leave a review from wherever you get your podcasts.